0: will look and taste different and he speaks about good works and remember we spoke uh, last time we were together these good works aren't in order to get right with God but we do good works because we are right with God and what you'll notice is uh, you may not notice but let me bring it to your attention is that what we're seeing is Jesus is starting to focus the beam more and more intently so what you have with the Beatitudes is uh, the third person blessed are the poor in spirit and then Jesus goes into the second person and he says you are the light of the world what he'll do now is he'll go into the first person and he'll say, truly I tell you. So we see this, it's getting more and more focused, more and more personal. Let me bring it in to focus, who we're calling you to be as people that live in the kingdom of God. So Matthew chapter five, uh, some challenging words this morning. So we're just going to do a classic verse by verse unpacking. Is that okay? Say yes, because I haven't prepared anything else. So we'll go with that. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, there it is, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Ouch. But whoever does and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Feeling encouraged? Let's unpack it, shall we? I want to start by just speaking about this. Because I think Jesus is speaking into what the Bible is and how he reads the Bible. And so those of us that follow Jesus in the room, we kind of can learn from him something. So what is this? What is this book? It's not a trick question. The Word of God. What what do you call it? Bible. Well done. That that looked like it was you, Ian, but it was a female voice, so I'm guessing it was Sue behind you. (laughs) It's the Bible. It is the biggest selling book of all time. That's what it is. Is the Bible. But what do we actually think this is? We call it a book, but actually, more accurately, it's a library. It's a library because it is multiple books or multiple writings that have been collected into what we would see now as this Old Testament, New Testament in the format that it's in but it's made up of historical stories, of poetry, songs, genealogies, biographies, legal codes. There's quite a few letters in there. There's a type of writing that we don't even have anymore called apocalyptic. Yes, it's a book, but it is more like a library. And so when we're reading it, we we can need to know that when we're reading certain parts of it, the way we would read poetry, the way you would read poetry today, would be different to how you would read someone's biography, isn't it? The metaphor of poetry you wouldn't apply the same as you're reading a biography and it's the same when we're reading scripture and so one of our values as a church is learning and we learn how to read scripture we learn how to engage with god through his word but it was written by several dozen authors over a period of a thousand years from before the time of moses moses wrote down the oral tradition at the time to decades after jesus so that's what this book is that we have today isn't that amazing That God wanted us to have it so much that over a thousand years, in 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 a time and place completely different to us, in two continents, this was written across. With dozens of different authors, over a thousand years, he has given us this book. So many people struggle to engage with scripture. Is it any wonder, with all I've just described, that we can struggle to engage with it? We can struggle to understand it. It can be hard to understand, and if it is understood, then many of it can be challenging. We read the violence and the abuse in the Old Testament, the laws surrounding slavery, and then in the New Testament, there are things that are completely at odds with how the majority of the world are living today. And we can get a little bit lost opening this book. Do you agree? I hope you do, because the reality is there are challenging things in here. There are things that challenge the way we live, and what we're going to do today is wherever you're at with the Bible this morning, the verses we're going to unpack and how we're going to learn to look at Scripture is how Jesus looks at Scripture, okay? So we're going to learn from Jesus as we engage with His Word. So what's really important as we go through this verse by verse is to learn how Jesus reads Scripture and how we engage with the Bible. And so let me start, verse 17. He starts by saying, Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So let me make something really, really clear. Jesus is referencing the law and the prophets. As Jesus is referencing the law and the prophets, keep in mind that the Bible we have today is not the Bible that Jesus had. It wasn't in the codex that we have it, the layout that we have it. Uh, He certainly didn't have the New Testament. That wasn't written because he he was starring in it. We'll get to it in a minute, but he was starring in the Old Testament as well. But there was no New Testament. And the Old Testament was made up of scrolls that were kept in the synagogue. So there wasn't like one Old Testament the way we had it, and you just sit there and have a good read. It was scrolls kept in various synagogues. And they would call it the Scriptures. The other names were the Law or the Prophets. Some areas you'll see it's called the Writings. This is because the Old Testament was grouped into two or three categories. So the Law was called the Torah. And uh, I think law is a bit of a, uh, uh, it's not a great translation of that word. It's the, the literal translation is revealed instructions. So it's actually teaching. And it's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, they're two great reads. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that's the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. The next category we have are called the Prophets. Now, bizarrely, to us, we might think prophets, okay, got that sorted if you've been in church for a while, but the prophets was made up of the historical writings as well, so Joshua, Judges, Ruth, those books, as well as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, there's some crazy stuff that goes on in those books, have a good read. Uh, The third category was called the Writings. And this uh, included the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, what we would call the wisdom literature. And um, also, it's a really bad phrase, I can't think of any other way of saying it, but all the odds and ends that didn't fit into the other two categories fell into the writings. So when Jesus is saying the law and the prophets, think the Bible. More specifically, think the Old Testament. Okay, so about that much. That's what Jesus is speaking into when he says the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying he didn't come to abolish it. No matter what it may look like, I think he's speaking here to those that have been challenged by how he's living and what he's doing. If you remember that um, in, in Mark, you see how he, um, uh, he, he heals on the Sabbath and when his disciples come and pick ears of corn on the Sabbath, people are, people are struck and like, how can he allow this to happen? His disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And so I think he's speaking to those that Uh, struggled with the way he taught and they they challenged his authority when he taught and said he's speaking as if one who has it like God and so they were challenged by who he was and so I think he's saying here don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets the Old Testament what's the opposite of demolish? Rebuild, assemble. The word uh, abolish means to dismantle, uh, uh, disobey. But what's interesting here, that Jesus doesn't say, I didn't come to dismantle the law, but to assemble it. I didn't come to disobey the law, but to obey it. He doesn't do the opposite. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The word fulfill is seen all over Matthew. And it's a word that is used to explain a pattern or a prophecy from the Old Testament that comes to pass in Jesus. That's what that word fulfill means. And so we see it in Matthew 26, verse 52. It says, Then Jesus told him, put your swords back in its place, because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will provide uh, me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled? It's being fulfilled in him that this it, that say it must happen this way. It goes on in verse 55. At the same time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But all this happened so that the writings of the prophets, there's another phrase for the Old Testament, he's not just talking about just the prophets, Uh, as we know that's the history and the prophets, but he's, he's saying the writings of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. Jesus came on a mission. God is on a mission. That in and through Jesus, it finds its completion and its fulfillment. John Stott puts it this way, Jesus had come not to abolish the law and the prophets, setting them aside or abrogating them, nor even endorse them in a dead and legalistic way, but to fulfill them. To literally fill them up. As one commentator says, the Old Testament is like a bud and the New Testament is like the flower. The one reveals the fullness of the other isn't that a beautiful picture? The Bible Project, great podcast and videos, if you engage with it, says that this is one unified story that leads to Jesus. Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. He's saying, I'm the crux. I'm the point of it all. I am the center. I am the climax. It's meant to be about me, not because he's arrogant, but because he's God. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Jesus the New Testament looks back and it looks forward to his second coming, which leads us nicely into the next verse. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. When Jesus says, for truly I tell you, this is like a little catchphrase for Jesus. And what he's saying is, uh, uh, um, listen up to what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is really important, and it will surprise you. This is the first time in 30 times that it will be used in Matthew alone, and this is the first time he says it. So, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the Lord until all things are accomplished. The smallest letter, the actual Greek word there is the word yod, and it is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. It's like a comma. And the single stroke, stroke of a letter is is Greek and it's referencing the flicks and serifs that you see on the letters. Not the smallest detail, the, the, the littlest detail that may even go unnoticed. That will not pass away. Notice Jesus only says law here. Doesn't say prophets, does he? This is just, again, it's another phrase for the Old Testament. He's not just singling out something of it. He's saying, it will not pass away until all things are accomplished. That is until heaven and earth pass away. Do you know that the purpose of Christianity is not that God fits us and prepares us to go and live in some space up there with him for the rest of eternity? Did you know that? The idea isn't that that the final thing is that our our dismembered bodies, this soul, drifts up to heaven and spends eternity in heaven playing a harp with Jesus. Jesus' body is now sat at the right-hand side of the Father. And we have received the Spirit. So there's this point where heaven and earth have kind of swapped because someday God's kingdom will fully come. Uh, As one commentator says, there'll be a mighty rebirth of the universe until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus is referencing this moment when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and God's dwelling place is with man. And we, we get resurrected bodies N.T. Wright would say that you're, it's life after life after death. Isn't that great? Jesus is making it clear how we're to read the Bible here. In light of that which is to come, that the renewal of all things on earth as it is in heaven, we'll speak into that a few, a bit more in a minute, but he's saying the whole of the Old Testament points to me, points to what God had always got in, plan, in store. It's not that there was one plan and then we go, oh, I got that wrong, right, Uh, Jesus, do you fancy uh, just hopping down and sorting things out? It was always the plan. It was always the plan to reach all nations, to see all the nations come to him and for him to bring a mighty rebirth of the universe where everything will be put right and there'll be a new Eden where that which he made is going to be how it will be again and he'll make all things new. You know what? I can't wait for that moment. So made new. We were just talking about all of our ailments, weren't we? Are a couple of old men playing football with the kids the other week in the garden. And I wasn't wearing like sports shoes. I was just wearing shoes. The next day, my knees were shot. I'm like, I'm 39 years old. But then I think, if anything in my house at 39 years old, it's broken by now. So no wonder I'm breaking. <laughs> but there will be a day when he restores all things. And Jesus is saying, the Old Testament and the whole of this scripture is pointing to me. I am the point of it all. And there will be a point when it's all made new. When, when all things are accomplished, he's saying the whole of the, New Te- the Old Testament is pointing like a signpost towards someone and that someone is me. Knowing this stuff should affect how we live. And Jesus goes on to that in verse 19. He says, in light of all of that, therefore, because of what you've just heard, that this is one story that leads to me. I'm the point of it all. I'm the center of it all. And there's going to be some other stuff that happens in the future. But right now, how you live is important. Therefore, whoever breaks... That word breaks means set aside or relax or loosen up. Whoever uh, loosens up or relaxes, one of the least of these commands, just pause there, which commands? What's Jesus talking about? Which commands is he talking about? Is he talking about all the commands in the Old Testament or is he talking about the commands that he's just about to unpack in the Sermon on the Mount? We love we love an either or, don't we? Why can't it be both and? I think Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not, is not saying anything new about how we follow Jesus of how we follow and live out. But he will say the way I interpret it may be different to how you think it should be interpreted. So I think it's both. Essentially, Jesus will go on to speak about how we follow him and live out the story of Scripture. So the commands for Jesus means his way of reading, interpreting, and living out the Scriptures. Therefore, anyone who sets aside or relaxes or dismisses certain commands as out of date or they're just not for me or explain bits away as I'm not sure I like that, do you know Thomas Jefferson? He, uh, he decided that he didn't like certain parts of the Bible. And so he just cut sections out. Just took, he sat there with a, like you imagine, sat there with a scalpel, just like, don't like that bit, let's cut that bit out. And he pieced together his own Bible of the stuff that he liked, removing the stuff that he doesn't. Jesus says, don't start doing that. Even one of the least, the smallest little comma that you can't even spot, don't be tempted to say, um, that's just not for me, I'm sorry because the call to follow Jesus is a call of obedience, and we try and live a certain way on our own, and we think it can work, and we say, actually, I'm not sure about that command. Let's just put that to a side. And he's saying, don't be tempted, because the life that I offer you can only live within the framework and the boundaries that I've put in place. Otherwise, it simply won't work, and some of us have testimony to, to, to that end that says, we tried, and it doesn't work, Therefore, anyone who sets aside, relaxes, dismisses certain commands and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. There's a play on words here. How we treat the least of the commands of God will be called the least in the kingdom. It appears, listen into this, it appears that there's a relationship between how we treat the Bible and our experience of the kingdom of God. Whatever you do to the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom. We'll pick this up again at the end. In contrast, and more positively, whoever does and teaches these commands, in the scripture, knowing and teaching is not just an intellectual thing. We go on about this a lot because I think the the Western church loves information. We like to come somewhere, be fed what we want to know, go away feeling like we're changed because we've got a new piece of information. That is not transformation biblically. You have to apply it. The book ends of this sermon, Jesus says, put it into practice and put it into practice. So he's saying, um, uh, whoever does the least of these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So not just believing them morally, ethically, or socially, but actually living them out. Reading the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible meant putting it into practice, living out what he's teaching. Sounds good, doesn't it? If I could end right there and just say, right, that's it. Let's go and live it. Amen, let's get the band up, let's do a rousing song. If you can just play a song that will kind of just send us out, you know, just a real spirit rousing song, and we'll go out and we'll be the great ones in the kingdom of heaven doing great stuff. I wish Jesus had finished there, but he doesn't. He then says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Ah, darn. I guess we're out, aren't we? I mean, I am. I can't speak for you, I project my sin onto you, but the reality is, I bet you probably feel right now, my righteousness can't surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Righteousness isn't something we speak about much these days, but it basically means your goodness, what is seen as right before God. So unless your goodness and right Look, uh, right standing before God can, can surpass the people that you know as the most righteous people. In Jesus' day, that was the scribes and the Pharisees. Often, and I've done this myself in sermons, often we like to depict the scribes and the Pharisees as like stuffy, uh, know-it-alls, trying to catch people out. Uh, that, that's kind of the, the caricature of the Pharisees, but they were actually very intellectual. They were well-respected because they were passionate uh, observers of, of the Torah. And they did it because they wanted to honor God. So try and think of the most godly person you know. Have a think. I don't it fails in comparison, but maybe it's like a Mother Teresa or a Billy Graham uh, or a Dallas Willard or whoever it is that, that you read and think, wow, they're just, you know, Eugene Peterson would be one for me, Henry now, and Philip Howe. Maybe Philip is the, the godly man that you, he, he's, he's assuming that himself unless you're more godly and good than any of them, unless you leave them in the dust of your goodness, I'm sorry, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, what are you saying? Have you, just, have you just now just discredited us all? Unless you keep the letter of the law more meticulously than the most meticulous law keepers, I'm sorry you don't get in. I mean, I've read the law. I've read, I've read this book. Have you read it? Guess I'm not in. And what about blessed are the poor in spirit? We've just taught that a few months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The whole teaching of that was you cannot be good enough. In fact, those that are welcome are those that admit they they have nothing. Righteousness being one of those things. I thought we were blessed and welcomed in. So what's going on? We've got to understand what Jesus is speaking about when he says your righteousness exceeds or surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. If we read this to mean a breadth of goodness seen in more and more and more and more right and good behavior, then good luck to you. But what if surpassing the the, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is not about a breadth of goodness, but a depth of goodness? Instead of behavior, Jesus is speaking about something in the heart. See, as we move through the Sermon on the Mount... What Jesus will do, in the, we'll look at it in the coming weeks. He's going to lay out six examples where he's going to quote from the Old Testament and then he's going to show you how he reads and interprets the Old Testament. And we're going to start that next week. I think, Phil, you're speaking on, uh, on anger. And he'll say, you have heard that it was said, and then he'll go on and say, but I say to you. And he gives some teaching on it. In each of these examples, Jesus is showing us how he reads the Bible, how he applies it. And instead of looking at murder, for example, and we can go tick, all right with that not done murder. Whew, that's that's a good one. Let's start there because majority of us haven't murdered anybody. <laughs> that I know of. But Jesus goes deeper when he teaches. And he says you may know that you've not murdered anybody, but are you cynical and critical towards others? Jesus is saying, Jesus saying that the command to murder is not, is not just about have you physically killed someone. There's something deeper that this command is getting at. Is the heart condition. Do you have contempt for other people? Are you, are you, you might be like the scribes and the Pharisees and can celebrate that you've not murdered someone. But I ask, is your goodness deeper than that? How do you feel towards that person that made you look like a joke in the meeting at work? Or that family member that took you for granted? Or that friend that stole your boyfriend or girlfriend? You might not have murdered anybody, but Jesus is saying, I'm going deeper. Maybe you've not committed adultery, that's really, really good. But what about the direction of your eyes when no one is looking? Your heart towards that which is somebody else it Says something about what's going on deeper at a heart level of our humanity. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's not enough to read the whole Bible and obey all its commands. Not that that is a bad thing, and if you can do it on your own, good luck to you. Come and preach because you're probably more qualified than me. The Pharisees thought that external conformity to the law was enough. And Jesus, do you know what Jesus calls them? Whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside you absolutely stink. We need to be careful. Jesus says, surpassing the righteousness is not about more and more obedience, but a deeper and deeper obedience. And this is how it was always meant to be. We can go back and we can look at the prophets. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It was always the plan, always the way that it was gonna be. A deeper, deeper than our outward obedience, it's about our hearts. But How? How do we live with this deeper obedience? Ezekiel 20, uh, Ezekiel thirty six, twenty seven. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The, the amazing thing is, the good news is that we've not been left alone to muddle through. That as those that are called to live as the people of God, let me spell this out to you as clearly as possible. That what, what we're called to be as we follow Jesus is, as I said earlier, that one day there will be a time when heaven and earth will be reunited, that God's dwelling place will be with man. Scriptures use all kinds of different pictures for that. This new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens. What we get to be right now is citizens of that kingdom whilst we're here. So we get to live with all the values and, and the way that life's going to work in the future when God restores all things and makes all things new. We're called to live that now. And so God has given us that which is from heaven, the Spirit, to help us now here. Jesus that was here is now in heaven, so heaven and earth have come together, and Jesus is the first uh, example of that, but we get to be the ones that are filled with heaven, filled with the Spirit of God, so we're not called to do it on our own, we're not called just to, to try and muscle through, we've got the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit is far stronger than the power of sin, now sometimes you will think, no it's not, sin feels so strong, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The power of the Spirit is greater and stronger than the power of sin. Through trusting Jesus, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, for some, that happens at salvation. We say yes to Jesus, and we're baptized in the Spirit, as we heard from Philip. Others, they might have a, a, an encounter with Jesus, and then they don't realize, and then they have, we see it in the Scripture, they have this subsequent baptism in the Spirit that gives them the power that enables them to live out the life that God is calling them to. If you're struggling to live out the life that God calls you to, then cry out to him and say, I need the Holy Spirit. Come and fill my life, Holy Spirit, because we cannot do it on our own. And let me tell you, it might not just happen like bang, sometimes it does. I had a moment where I encountered the Holy Spirit and it was like bang. I was like, whoa, God is incredible. Don't remember the time I gave my life to Jesus, grew up in church, was very blessed with a family that went to church and engaged, and, and God was real for me, I had a relationship with Jesus, but I didn't know about the Holy Spirit until I was 13, and suddenly had this encounter with the Holy Spirit. Did it mean that every issue and struggle that I've ever faced was solved? No, I had a passion to live for Jesus, and I orientated my life towards that kingdom that was going to come. And I said, I'm going to try my hardest with the with work of the Spirit within me to participate with you in order to live the kingdom now. But it didn't mean I didn't stop struggling. Actually, God, through loads of different ways, has dealt with some stuff in my life, and the Spirit is working so we can be citizens of that kingdom. So the Old Testament with its commands are not just thrown out as old and out of date. So the biggest question then is, so which ones apply? Which ones apply? What do, we, do we need to sharpen the knives and start a circumcision service? Some, <laughs> do you know what? I got a view then that none of you guys got of all the men just going, no. <laughs> Thankfully not. Because for Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its fullness in him get these stats about the Bible, 43% of the Bible is story, it's narrative, 33% is poetry, that's nearly 80% of the contents of the Bible is either story and narrative and poem. Less than 20% is a letter or a teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount or Paul's letters. So add that up, and the commands that we find in the Bible are in single figures, less than 4% of the Bible commands why is this important because so many of us reduce this down to some encyclopedia of rules that we've got to try and obey and we even have this horrific acronym you may have heard of it basic instructions before leaving earth oh my words as if all this is is some manual to say you've got to scrape by you've got to be good and if you're good enough and fit enough of it and listen to enough of the commands you'll get the instruction in order to fly off into heaven and live there forever The majority of this is narrative and story and that's how jesus reads it he reads it as a story jesus reads the bible as a story with him at the center of it all because that's the majority of what it is yes there are commands in that story some of which are relevant for an earlier part of the story but they're not relevant for a later part of the story not because they were bad but because they were for then and they're not for now think of it like this when i was young my parents had certain rules for me as a child So bedtime was seven o'clock. I was allowed a little bit later on a Saturday and a Sunday. I don't know what time it was, but for those of you that are old enough, I remember the theme tune to The House of Elliot, and then I would go to bed. If any of you can remember The House of Elliot? I have no idea what it's about, apart from some women that do sewing or something. I I never watched it, I just remember the theme tune. So the theme tune makes me just feel like, oh, it's bedtime. (laughs) So when I was five years old, seven o'clock bedtime. Now I'm 39 years old, that same rule doesn't apply. It was right for an earlier, it's even earlier now. <laughs> but my mum is not coming round to my house at 7 o'clock, knocking on the door saying, John, I'm just checking you're up in bed. You've brushed your teeth, you've had a bath, you've washed behind your ears and got rid of the cauliflowers. And that you took up in bed ready to go to sleep. Because it was right for an earlier part of my life. It's not relevant now. It's not that it was a bad rule. It was a perfect rule for the five-year-old me, but now I've matured. This is what Paul speaks about in, I think it's Galatians 3. When he says the law is like a tutor, a better language is like a nanny that kind of helps us mature. Some of the commands of the Old Testament are like this, to grow the people of God in maturity. Some of them are great for them, but they're not for now. And there are some commands that are forever and it takes wisdom to know the difference. We don't just get to pick and choose the ones we like or don't like. We need some kind of key that helps us unlock which are for then and which are for now. And do you know what the key is? It's Jesus. That is the key. Through the writings of the New Testament, like the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going through together, we get the message and the story and the person of Jesus so deep down within our hearts that it starts to transform us from the inside out into a whole new type of human being whose motivation is love. That's the work of Jesus. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. I hope that's a little bit more encouraging than how we might have read it and might have discouraged others in the past. The kingdom of God says come and you'll be transformed, not just with information, but transformation. This paragraph, it ends with quite a warning. Jesus is saying, don't just understand what I'm saying, live it out, put it into practice. That's the phrase that he used, I said earlier, the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount, put it into practice. It's interesting that one-fifth of the Sermon on the Mount is about doing what it actually says. Can you imagine if as I'm preaching, I go, blah dee blah go and do it. blah bad, go and do it. blah bad, that bloody bar blah stuff is really deep stuff, by the way, it's not just blah But <laughs> blah go and do it. That's the Sermon on the Mount. One-fifth of everything you're reading, now go and do. For Jesus, and what we'll see as we continue this sermon and as we read the scriptures, is as I've said, it's not just about information, but transformation. It's not enough to read and study it. At some point, we actually have to live it. Because for Jesus, what we do is actually really important. What we do in our relationships, what we do with our eyes, what we do in our thinking, it's important. What we do with the Bible is important. Ben, Vicky, I wonder if you come up and play away. Just want to finish with this, and then I'm done. Two minutes, and then we're done. And then we can depart and be blessed. But I said um, that I would pick up on something at the end. So let me just jump back. It says, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This appears to be saying that God's treatment of us is directly... Connected to our treatment of the Bible. How we treat the Word of God, anyone who breaks the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If we pick and choose what we live by, if we use scripture to line up with our opinion and our bias, if we do a Thomas Jefferson and cut out the problematic commands, and we create our own faith, Jesus doesn't condemn us to hell, He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, so you'll burn in the fires of, of Hades. He says, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. God's treatment of us is directly connected to our treatment of His word, which makes sense if we believe Scripture to be God's word to us, the authority of God, in living out as He invites us to. And if we shrug it off and say, I don't think i will bother with that bit, then what does that say about what we think of God? If we dishonor it, how can we expect God to honor us? Now this feels really uncomfortable to our modern way of life, that that we would dare to orientate our life around a book. But it's because of what we believe this to be. If the Bible is the authority of Jesus given to those that follow him, surely how we treat the Bible is in direct relationship to how we treat Jesus. To declare Jesus as Lord and then disregard his commandments as we find them, as he unpacks them and teaches, at least it's hypocrisy. If Jesus is Lord, then we're admitting that he is the creator and we are the created, and so we submit and enter into how he says life should work. I know this isn't a popular way of living in the world, because the world says do whatever you want to whoever you want as long as... They give consent. If it's not hurting anyone, just go for it. But Following Jesus means we look, taste, sound, be different. And the beam of light is getting more and more focused. And so I'm speaking to those that are following Jesus in the room. If you're not, we can have a little chat. This is the beam of light getting more and more focused, getting more and more personal. Whatever you do to the least of these commands, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. There's the warning but Jesus is, is always an invitation. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't saying you become rich and famous if you take the teachings of Jesus as a map on the pathway to good character and you follow it one day at a time over the course of your life you will grow into being a bright shining example of Jesus and his kingdom and all that it stands for not just on a surface level but on a deep down soul level set free where that that bottom layer of anxiety that so many of us seem to live with is no more because we can trust in who he is and what he's done And each morning we rise and there is a heartbeat of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's what is on offer as we follow Jesus. There's a warning, but there's an invitation. And so with Bible in hand, what will you do with it? The invitation of God is, come and know me. Come and hear my story. Come and be part of the story. Realize that you're wrapped up in this story. And the story continues and we get to carry it forward with Jesus at the center. So let's stand together, shall we? A little bit of a different message this morning when we're actually looking at God's word and its importance to us. But Jesus is starting this sermon by saying this is important. So we're going to email out some resources if you're part of our email list. If you're not, then jump on our website and get on that. We're going to help you engage with the Bible um, in our gospel communities as we gather around it and we seek to live it out through missional households. One of our values, I said earlier on, is learning. What does it look like for you to commit some time to learning the Word of God? Maybe memorizing some scriptures or using one of the resources that we'll send out and learning more about God's Word and how to read it and apply it. And that's the important thing. For us, learning is not just about our head, it's about our heart and our hands. So I pray that we just be blessed, and may we go out as a people who love God's word and know it and live it together for His glory. that the kingdom that will one day fully come starts to be revealed in small little ways by those of us that are living it right now. Lead us in a song.